0: I'm Chris Biddle, and welcome to episode 97 of Inside Agritov. Now, in the past, and to paraphrase a famous book, there has been a sense of manufacturers are from Mars, dealers are from Venus. They operate in the same space, but different dynamics drive their businesses. The manufacturer is often a global company delivering shareholder value. The dealer, a family concern, is meeting the day-to-day demands of local customers. And yet, they are totally dependent on one another. Simply, the dealer should be an extension of the manufacturer's brand. We make it, you sell it and look after it. It has to be a partnership. And yet, do they really understand each other? Is there enough collaboration? Any mistrust that exists is often rooted in the actions of, say, a manufacturer with instructions on high who has to rationalise its dealer network, removing the franchise from small independent companies who have represented that brand for many years. On the other hand, the pendulum is swinging with the rise of multi-branch dealerships, many of whom have grown through acquisition, which puts much of the power back in their hands. Now, it's impossible to generalise, particularly when most dealers are multi-franchise. But I wonder whether there is enough cross-talk and understanding of the business of supplying and supporting machinery and equipment between the partners that extends beyond the boundaries of the order book. To help me explore this supplier-dealer relationship in a bit more detail, I'm delighted to be joined by Jerry Hans, who has had extensive experience in establishing dealer networks, mostly in parallel sectors to the ag and turf care market. So, Jerry, welcome. And perhaps first you could tell me something about your background.
1: Yeah, Chris, I started... Um... Many years ago, uh, in the, in finance with Ingersoll Rand, actually straight out of university, did that for a couple of years, and then when I was working at the European headquarters in Paris, Ingersoll Rand purchased Club Car uh, as part of a larger transaction, uh, and they had no one really based in EMEA. I interviewed for the role as the regional manager running the dealer network with very little to no experience, and uh, and got the job, and uh, ran that dealer network for about four or five years and then once i i kind of got the bug dealing with the small companies that i was dealing with uh, i left there and set up my own capital equipment distributorship in the uk and that was uh, 22 23 years ago
0: so thrown into the uh, in, into the world of pointing dealers well what, mm. what, what did you find out in those early days how easy
1: was it how
0: it, challenging was it
1: it was it was challenging it was a great learning experience uh, in in many different ways um but Ingersoll Rand was quite a worldwide company. Club Car wasn't, so they had no employees based out based outside of North America. So, I was the first one really to spend a lot of time in EMEA, and there was about thirty to thirty five dealers across that territory, and a good ten to fifteen weren't very active. So, it was uh, you know, it was almost one or two contacts, and you, they'd sign you up as a dealership. So, my remit was to go through and you know. Basically, visit all the distributors and determine you know who's worth keeping and saving and building, and who needed unfortunately to be changed and going for a stronger partner. So, it was it was tough. I had some very good, uh, if you like, teachers uh, at Club Car that really helped me and you know really understood the product and the and the kind of the 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 model dealer that they used in in the states, and I used that um, to kind of start the process of uh, rationalising the dealer network and improving it basically.
0: So, I mean, we want to just talk broadly about dealer development which Mm -hmm. is which in itself is a very broad term yes what what do we what do we mean by it what what does it mean to you
1: jerry well to me i think it means working in conjunction in better conjunction with the manufacturer and the dealer to ensure effectively yeah and to ensure and i hate this expression but it's apt in this situation win-win because Mm. the manufacturers have to let the dealers win sometime and the manufacturers have to make an appealing and attractive business for a good dealership to be a tr- to to want to be their dealer, because if not, you're going to get the second and third tier dealers who maybe aren't as financially astu- financially and commercially astute to to go after that dealership. So they have to make it to in a business that is attractive to a potential distributor or dealer. Oh. Um, and Chris, one of the questions I like to ask, like when I was dealing with people on the manufacturer side, marketing, sales, senior senior management. Is would you be one of our dealers? Uh. And if the answer is no, then we've got a problem there. Because <laughs> why wouldn't you? Why you know, if the margins aren't good enough, they don't make enough money, it's too hard work. Uh, and that is something that I think needs addressing and how do we make it a, an appealing distributorship to have?
0: Because in many ways, of course, the dealer's got to be an extension of the the manufacturer's business, haven't hasn't they?
1: Absolutely. You are, the dealers are that manufacturer's um, kind of first of first point of contact for that brand in many different countries and territories. So they represent the brand. So if they're not representing the brand well, that will affect the overall manufacturer's reputation in the industry.
0: Well, do you, do you know, it's a horrible phrase and I hate it, but Honda once had a phrase, um, glocalization. It's probably used in other places, but effectively, <laughs> it's a global company with mm. local representation. And whilst yeah. I hate that phrase, it you know, <laughs> can, can see just sum it up,
1: doesn't it? Yeah, it, it's very, very, uh, in a way, accurate. Yeah, yeah. So we've got the dealers,
0: and mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of up to the to them to work together with the manufacturers, their suppliers, mm-hmm. and and of course, many of them will have, I guess, uh, most self-respecting dealers will have some sort of dealer management system, something to be able to manage how they do. Because if exactly. you go down to if you go back to dear old Peter Drucker, mm-hmm. uh, what was it? What gets measured gets managed, or yes. something like that. yes,
1: and that, that's very um, true.
0: So do you think that those dealers, it's all very well having a dealer management system, which spews out lots of data, but do you think, in your experience, they do enough with that data?
1: Probably not. And then there might be a couple of reasons for that. One is the old Express and Geigo, garbage in, garbage out. So that information being input into the system is not done accurately. That, obviously, it, it causes questions and, and, and questions of validity of the data in, in the first place. But that is important. And there's a lot of new things now. I don't know if you heard of Power BI. It's an app you can get free of charge. And it draws data out of different softwares and can give a nice, um, if you like, just a snapshot view of different pieces of the business that different people within the business and different departments would want to see. You know the ops guy may not necessarily want to see market share or sales, but he wants wants to see, you know, uh, service engineer utilization and parts fulfillment percentages. So it's quite good to draw that data out, but it's got to be good going in, or well, the information yes. you get out is is not very helpful.
0: Yes, because I mean it's only expected. So can you repeat that app again for me? Because it's a, I put a the- Power
1: BI. So Power BI, yeah it's uh, yes. it's free it's i think you've got to pay maybe a little bit for the membership continuing okay. using it but it's something that i know a lot of companies are using now
0: do most manufacturers or many manufacturers have anybody dedicated to uh, working with their dealers to help d- dealers efficiency and so on
1: yeah i mean in most cases they'll have you oh. know they'll call them the different names it's distributor dealer manager channel managers but a lot of times you'll find, I'm sure you've seen this in your experience, uh, Chris, is that it's it's almost like an order taker, you know what I mean? And that is the problem, is they come in and they just demand orders, and they're not helping that distributor or dealer to get more orders and to increase their market share and be more successful. So it's often a combative relationship. It's not necessarily, let me help you, help yourself. It's, where's my order? Where's my order? And that, you know, the, you know, the constant phone calls and the pushing doesn't help anyone. Um so when you have the dealer manager properly trained and go in there and understand the the needs and the wants of a small SME, you know, a small business person, it makes all the difference in the world. Um, and I think that's vital, really.
0: Yeah, I just saw a quote the other day to say the quality of the relationship between the manufacturer and the dealer is far more important than any contractual agreement that, uh, that, that, that occurs. And uh, I oh, think that doesn't there does have to be that uh do you um you, you now run a company um hans mm-hmm. consulting um mm-hmm. i mean if you were to get involved would you normally get involved with manufacturers initially and and what kind of market are you looking to um operate in presumably it's it's b2b rather than business yes. to consumer
1: yeah, I'm really trying to focus on what I consider my strengths. So it's capital equipment manufacturers who have dealer networks. So CE, construction equipment, ag, turf, and materials handling. Those are the kind of four areas I've experienced in and would, you know, and it's something at my, my stage in life where I'm, you know, semi-retired, I want to enjoy it. And I would enjoy doing a deep dive into a dealer network for any of the major manufacturers in that, specifically in, in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. But it's those industries that I think as well, probably could benefit the most from it because, you know, like you said earlier, they are the, you know, the representation for that manufacturer on, on the ground. And they need to be, you know, part as of a partnership with the manufacturer versus kind of an anti- antagonistic relationship.
0: And and how is that service kind of delivered? What What's the first steps then, Jerry? Well,
1: there's a couple of different ways I'll deliver it. One, we can do uh, a lot of benchmarking. You know, I work with the McDonald Group and Walt McDonald from the States, and he has – you know, decades of data that we can use to measure. So the first step we can do is pick certain parts of the business, whether it be service, warranty, after sales, service engineers, you know, sales, you know, complete machine sales, uh, and then quantify what we're going to do. And then we measure it in comparison to their peers in the industry. And where we see, you know, uh, large differences from what they should be achieving based on that data, Then we can say, well, if we could get to that point, even a median point, we can contribute X to the bottom line here. And that usually gets the dealers and the manufacturers fairly interested then because it's a tangible result we think we can achieve. Um, And that's just one part of The other service I offer is working with the dealer managers and actually doing joint visits with them to their dealer network and working with them and how they relate with them, how how they interact, how they build that relationship versus just, like I said, being an order taker understanding their business better, understanding their needs, everything from cash flow to HR, you know, and that's, I think it's vital really because then you come across almost that dealer manager can come across as an advisor or a consultant in a way, but also it's like we mentioned the other day, the best practices, you know, taking, you know, a great um, process that the French distributor has done and bringing it over to the Irish fellow, you know, they did over there. Now, obviously many countries and markets are different, but more or less you could have that, um, passed over and shared amongst the greater greater you know dealer network what they do in France or Spain or Portugal whatever and i think that's powerful and I, I you know i've done that in the past and it's it's it goes it comes across better in a way because it's that it's for example the french guy will listen to what the spanish guy is doing because they're both in the same boat they're both dealers and they both have the same concerns issues wants and needs basically
0: yeah and and you know knowing dealers also they're often firefighting and mm-hmm. and sometimes an outside side pair of eyes can can spot things that they can't yeah. they can't yeah. spot yeah. um and i'm I'm sure you found that true to be uh, and and what about um engaging them in uh one of my favorite a, a swot analysis because um mm-hmm. you know it is quite often quite easy quite instructive and illuminating to sit down and say, what are our strengths and weaknesses? And those are kind of internal things. And what are the opportunities and threats outside? And obviously those are external factors.
1: No, that is part of the, absolutely part of the exercise. You got it. One, that's something we do. We also measure the customers and, uh, you know, once the whole exercise, see once again, with the box and the SWOT analysis that are, who are the dogs, who are the cash cows? And that's important too, is where they focus their resources on, um uh, and where they focus their time, energy uh, and money on really
0: I think it's one of those areas apart from the big maybe auto franchises, that mm. the role of a business manager, the link between the manufacturer and the dealer has generally gone gone by the by. would you would you say that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I would say. I mean I think that's you know I, I've never been involved in, in the if I like the car industry, but I don't see that relationship as it is with you know like a capital equipment manufacturer
0: no i i i think the car industry's got quite different problems with uh, mm. what's the phrase omnichannel marketing yeah yes, yes yes um so talking about benchmarking how useful can that be because obviously a lot of dealers would want to benchmark themselves against their their fellow dealers um mm. in the same area or with the same franchises um i don't see many uh, operating a comparison maybe uh, confidentially comparison service
1: yeah, and that that is true. And I think, you know, you can we I like I said with with Walt's Walt McDonald's information, we've got a lot of data there from many different industries. So we can use that. Now some of it may be more regional, you know. I think, you know, you can is can you necessarily compare a, a US dealership with one from the Middle East? I don't know, but there's definitely some similarities in how they run the business, especially if they're handling the same Type of goods, you know, um, we can't, we didn't. In that information, you wouldn't say this is a John Deere dealer in Texas, and this is a John Deere dealer in Saudi Arabia, but it would be a tractor, ag, that type of dealer. You could get that generality in there. So the information is helpful because at least the dealers can then see where they should be, and it's an achievable result. It's not the dealer manager saying, "Oh, you should be doing this." They're given achievable and a quantifiable measurement from somebody else who has a similar business to them. And that, I think, is is illuminating for a lot of the dealer principles.
0: And, and over the years, Jerry, are there any sort of common failings or shortfalls that you you, you think you have found amongst dealers, which is fairly commonplace, but may be very easy to fix?
1: Yeah, there are. I mean, it does differ, I think, from industry, um, but a lot of it is. Is like you said earlier, is that um that not getting an outside opinion. Now, a lot of these businesses have their family run businesses, and the principal or the MD or the president, whatever you want to call them, may not have a group of people that will, you know, object or counter or question what he says and does. And that's not a great environment to be in because you don't have that uh, critical outside opinion. They say, Well, why don't you do it this way? And especially in these businesses where the principal's been there 30, 40 years and his sons and daughters are in the business, you know, it, it kind of just it, it evolves into the same thing. And it may be sound like I'm, I'm pitching my services here, but an outside opinion, it's just someone just stepping back and saying, well, I saw another business similar to you and they did this. And it's like a light bulb goes off and they say, well, yeah, I can see that but no one else but maybe within the business has the courage or even the knowledge to know that another company in a similar situation to them is doing that as a process or a practice and that they're not doing it, they can actually say, oh, yeah, I see the benefit for that.
0: How how are dealers in sort of – Collecting the money and that sort of thing, which obviously is is the uh, cash management
1: uh, is one of the biggest things for SMEs. And I think um, you know, in my old distributorship, one of the best things we did was bring in a strong FD. You know, we we went for years and years with good bookkeepers. You know, the bookkeepers were very strong, but a strong FD. Yes, you have to spend the money for that, but I think they're they're you know worth their weight in gold. And and the woman we brought in just brought us to another level when it comes to credit and collection cleaning up you know, everything. And the management pack that she produced on a quarterly basis was one of the best I've ever seen. And it was just clear and concise. And you know, we said some of the things we'd like to see, but the amount of information that she would deliver to us on a quarterly basis allowed us to really look at our business uh, in a much more professional manner. You know, it wasn't just, yeah, what's, you know, what's the sales? It was every drilling down into every component of the PL and and the balance sheet. And then that drove us to have monthly meetings and quarterly meetings and become more of an organized company in many, many ways. So I would say that is, to me, if you get the numbers, if you get the finance right and the money right, so many things, you know, uh, just kind of fall into place. But we had this whole process of no PO, no go. And we find that so many times is that in the obviously, the very, very, you know, understanding drive for the people to give 100% customer satisfaction, they will send an engineer out at the drop of a hat. They'll get that tractor or that truck or that forklift fixed straight away. And then when they come back to the office and the dust settles and they ask the customer for that PO, it's tumbleweeds because their truck's up and running. They don't need anything now. And that's just a time thing as well. You know, you keep your accountant keeps chasing that PO. The PO doesn't come. You've got to make a phone call. You know, salesperson to purchaser, and it just wastes time. But that PO, and it might be a, a nominal amount of 250 pounds, but it allows you to keep a record of what you're doing. Uh, and sometimes that asking for a PO may make that customer go out to that truck or tractor and have a look at it again, because it may be something simple as a depressed kill switch or, you know, hasn't been charged properly or anything. And that avoids the call out, makes the customer happier. And allows you to get on to, you know, to proper breakdowns. But, yeah, I think that's one of the things that no P.O., no go is, I think, <laughs> should be inscribed in every wall and every dealership.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. N- nice phrase. Dealers, they obviously understand what uh, the local conditions are and what local customer needs are. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And yet they are faced with um manufacturers coming in or distributors coming in and say, buy this, buy this, because we're in challenging economic conditions at the moment. Absolutely, and the pressures yeah. are on, yeah. particularly for manufacturers mm-hmm. acting on behalf of a, a global um, company to to yeah. meet certain targets and, mm-hmm. and probably under more pressure uh, to meet the numbers than the dealer is, although the dealer is obviously uh, at the end of the line and, <laughs> and has yeah. a, a, a lot of skin in the game. Dealers really ought to sit down and really consider pretty, pretty clearly what the machine mix and brand mix ought to be. And sometimes I don't think they, they do enough of that, do they?
1: No, I, I think you're absolutely I know companies, um, personally, that have dealerships who so I won't mention. The gross margins are incredibly low, but it's almost a, an exercise. And, and they've just been doing it for 20 years, and they've sold this range for 20 years, and they'll have lots of volume on it. And single digit margins, and you look at the effort involved and the employees dedicated to that brand within the dealership. No one's taking a step back and saying, hang on a second here. Let's do a PL, a mini PL of just that brand and the people involved. And it's in, in nine times out of ten, when you get into that detail, it's not pretty. It's oftentimes uh it shows a loss, if you like, within the organization. So I think a lot of dealerships get involved in it because it's been a historical brand for them, but you're right, they need to. Cold light of day. Just take a step back and say, is this brand making us money? And they have got two options then. They can go back to the manufacturer and say, listen, you want me to proceed with this. I'm giving you lots of volume. You need to give me some margin contribution, or I'm going to discontinue this. And then the manufacturer's got to think that too, as well, you know, how are they going to find another dealer to replace that volume yeah. If the potential dealer calls the current dealer. And and so why you are why you dropping this brand? Oh, yeah. because the margins are rubbish. They get no support from the manufacturer. So, I think a lot of dealers need to do that rationalization within their business and understand. And also when they take on new brands is to really do a deep dive into the detail. Everything from what does that warranty really cover? What is the warranty recovery rate? Everything that's going to happen in that. If you take on that dealership, they need to know exactly to minutiae, are they going to make money on this? And it's, you know, you shouldn't be taking on a dealership because you just like the brand. You know, no. it just, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what does happen. Sometimes people are brand, you know, they're brand collectors. Mm. And I've seen it before. They like the brand. They take it on. And it's really not a profitable venture. Now,
0: I was, I was chairman of the, the dealer council for a major mm-hmm. tractor manufacturer mm-hmm. uh, back a rather long time ago, but one of the common comments that always came up at meetings with the manufacturer was, Oh, look at the lamentable margin we're able to make on the whole goods on the tractors, mm-hmm. to which their answer always was, well, what we're doing and what you're doing is increasing the park of the, our products, our, sorry, our brand mm. within your area on which to sell parts and service, which is your bread and butter. So... Looking at um, let's look at parts revenue. I mean, it, mm. parts is it, it's an extremely complex area, isn't it? To mm-hmm. to control properly and yep. obsolescence parts come in. Have you got any thoughts on some of the sort of golden rules for that,
1: then, uh, Jerry? Well, I think you know, I would have said five years ago, I probably would have had a different answer. Where currently now, you know, I think a lot of companies are uh, overloading. Their parts department because of the supply chain issues and the shipping issues hmm. so whilst you always wanted to run a lean operation is it worth running a lean operation and disappointing some of your major customers so i would take a look at, at a major dealer and say you need to identify your top 10 customers and their top 10 purchases if you like over the last three four years and make sure those are in stock and in plenty of stock because you don't want to let them down and the excuse of you know supply chain you know the container shipping issues you had from the far east that doesn't float when they yeah. get their machine is down, but that's one of the thing the things the you know it's different these days now um but it is it is complex besides the fact all the competition out there from the other dealers because you can buy all these parts on the internet now, the pirate parts, the aftermarket parts the you know the generic parts, if you want to call them that, they're all out there now, so it is a very tough business now, so when a manufacturer says what you said earlier, oh, you'll make the money up on parts and service well not as much as you used to, you know, 20, 30 years ago, when the internet wasn't as strong, yes, possibly. Now, you know, you got some super, super companies out there that have online really slick online ordering system for a lot of the major manufacturers of capital equipment out there. And I remember that from the, the golf car, the golf buggy days, there was a couple of companies in the States that had more stock sometimes than some of the manufacturers and definitely some of the dealers, you know, as and, and competitive pricing as well. So if they have the availability and a competitive price, People can easily get on the internet and order parts, you know, from, from say, London that are based up in Scotland. It's, it's not, there's no kind of local need anymore for that, unfortunately. So I do, I cringe when I hear manufacturers rep say that, oh, you make the money up on service and parts. So you're just selling the machine as a vehicle. You know, I just don't get that as a vehicle to make margins off the, the things that tell along behind it. Yeah.
0: I did say it was a long time ago and actually when well, now I come to think of it it was actually pre-internet days so uh, right, yeah. we'll, we'll park that very yeah, quickly yeah, and move yeah. on. Jerry we we hear this phrase service absorption um, mm-hmm. quoted which mm-hmm. um, if I understand it is the is the gross profit you you make out of parts and service and possibly in your area rental as well um yeah, depending yeah. um that should cover the 100% of the the, the, the company's overheads,
1: but I would think that's very difficult to do these days. And, and and that's there are some definite calculations for that, and there's different permutations, but that is accurate in some businesses. Other businesses, is not a chance, especially now, Chris, as we're going more and more down the electric route of a lot of different pieces of equipment, electric, electric-driven vehicles or battery vehicles, whatever you want to call them, have so many less moving parts and components and, and consumables than you would for an IC engine. So, I think that measurement is going to be difficult in the years to come. But you're right, that was the measurement, especially in, say, the construction equipment industry, where there's a high level of service and parts once the machine is sold and consumables, as material handling as well, you know, forklifts, chains, and forks and tires, there's a lot of business there. But as this goes on, you know, I just think that that's going to be a a different calculation to have. Now, some of these dealerships, as you said, they will absorb 100% of their overheads with their service and parts generate you know income generated from the service and parts department but that is that is going to have to be a big operation with probably a very large population of rental fleet and vehicles in the field but as you know a lot of industry especially in the forklift industry now it's all it's 100% rental so that you know adds more to the pot really
0: and and of course with all new technology um there must be a number of uh, new uh, gadgets and gizmos to be able to improve um service profitability and also short circuit the um that the service time and the downtime and uh, is that anything that has come to mind with you
1: yeah I, you know one of the things that we uh you know kind of offer is that hive qr uh, hiveqr.com it's just like um it's a it's a, a label that you put on a piece of equipment with a qr code that has all the data behind it so um an employee in a in a factory would see that the forklift's down, they have an app on their phone, they scan the QR code, and that would come up uh, to write straight to the, if you like, the after sales person from that company that's sold in that machine. And you can attach pictures and some text to say what is wrong with the machine. But right away, they have the make, the model, the serial number, any additional thing that was on that machine when it was originally sold, where it's located, who the contact people are. So that whole kind of reduction of time from a uh, breakdown to up and running again is being reduced. And that's another thing too. Plus, as you probably have seen as well, a lot of these machines, there's remote dial-ins now. So a lot of these will have capability for someone uh, in an office somewhere on a laptop to dial into that machine and do initial fault finding and possibly change things right then and there without physically sending the service engineer out. And I guess one of the main things I'm kind of, you know, preaching is, is reduction of downtime, which obviously calculates to increase customer satisfaction. And that's so important.
0: Sure. And and it's alive and well in living in a number of uh uh agricultural, particularly machinery dealerships, where in fact mm-hmm. they can almost anticipate a, a breakdown before it even happens. So uh, yeah, yeah. The, um, the
1: PM they call it the preventative maintenance thing should fly yeah. that as well and the guys on site looking at a machine. But that the the QR code, hive QR and the remote dialing yeah. Does a lot to really increase or decrease the downtime of the machine. Well, look,
0: Jerry, I've really in, enjoyed this. This, this <laughs> I won't say deep dive into beta uh, development because it's such a big subject. But I think yeah. I think the main takeaway is that um, manufacturers and suppliers can do more mm-hmm. to engage with their dealers in terms of getting the dealer more efficient.
1: But it's it's helping them. It's helping them. And sometimes they can't see the wood for the trees. Like you mentioned earlier, they should act almost as an outside person, but who has experience in working with similar companies as they are, but in different countries and different territories. And the sharing of best practices, I think, is one of the best ways to do that.
0: And on the very broad front then, uh, Jerry, uh, we've got the model of selling, of manufacturers selling uh, particularly capital equipment through a dealer mm-hmm. network. Mm-hmm. Can you see that model continuing and, and anything that might uh, impact all that in the future?
1: Well, like you touched on earlier about the car industry, I hope it doesn't go that way. because, uh, But I, I believe that because of the complexities and the after-sales side of things and a lot of the attachments and accessories that a lot of these machines will have, I don't think so. But I know there's some big people in the, in the turf care industry in the past that have made a lot of their dealers more or less PDI and delivery and service. So it's a direct sale for the manufacturer to the end customer. And then the, the PDI dealer is given a a percentage, either commission or a fixed amount to do that, you know, basically put the machine into service and then do the after sale. So it's a different model. I don't know if all the kind of capital equipment manufacturers can can deliver that because of the complexities of the machine. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it does roll out a bit more than it is now. Yeah.
0: Well, Jerry, many thanks once again. I've really enjoyed it. It's, um, no, no, thank you, Chris. Bit I enjoyed of, it myself. Bit of food for thought. And um, I will put the contact details on the show notes to, uh, to this episode. But thank you once again.
1: No, thank you. And happy St. Patrick's
0: Day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we forgot that. Thank you Yeah, exactly. Much.
1: Cheers, Chris. On one hand,
0: it is quite a complex undertaking putting together all the pieces of the jigsaw that result in a well-run, successful and profitable dealership. On the other hand, it is remarkably simple. Talk business, talk profit with your suppliers. There should be openness and trust between the partners to ensure that they both keep their eye on the board during this testing period. I'd really like to thank Jerry for his practical experience in this area and you will find links to all the relevant information in the show notes to this episode. So I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me and this is Inside Agritov.